Hello and welcome to our podcast from the APA in Belfast. I'm joined now by Philip Arnold, who is going to talk to us about paediatric blood transfusion. Uh, Philip is a consultant in Alderhey, uh, and his training included time in Liverpool, Toronto and Newcastle. Um, he sits on the Hospital Transfusion Committee in Alderhey, and he recently helped draft a guideline for the APA. He's chair of the Hospital Transfusion Committee at Alderhey and recently helped to draft the Association of Anesthetist Guidelines on Transfusion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Phil, can you give us an overview of what transfusion thresholds we should be working towards in children? Right, so we'll talk about transfusion thresholds for red cell transfusion. Okay. So I, th- I think the biggest point to make is the majority of children should not generally be transfused unless their haemoglobin is less than 70 grams per litre. Um, I think that's being borne out in fairly extensive trials in adults now. Um, really, in children, there's, there's one reasonable-sized um, trial which was conducted in stable, non-bleeding children in critical care units, and they use and they compared a haemoglobin threshold of 70 grams to 95 grams, and showed no difference in outcome between those two groups. So there's good evidence that there's no harm associated with use of restrictive transfusion thresholds. Um, I think, though, we have to be a bit careful here. Haemoglobin is not the only thing we should think about when we talk about triggers for transfusion. Um, The other things we should look at is the general condition of the patient, really, which should include hemodynamic stability, measurements of blood lactate, measures of of oxygen delivery, such as um, venous saturations, may be useful and use of um, near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, The problem is none of these other measures have really been validated, and I think to sense what they amount to is a general sense of the well-being of the patient and the stability of the patient. Probably the best test to think about is when you're thinking about transfusing a patient, think about what the real benefit is you want to bring to that particular patient. And if if the answer is just that you want the haemoglobin to be a bit higher or you want them to look a bit pinker, that's probably not a very good indication for the transfusion. Um, so following on from that, is, is employing this sort of restrictive transfusion uh, advisable? In the majority of children, yes. The majority of children have good cardiorespiratory reserve and they should tolerate that level of anemia well. Um, and so yes, we should be using them in the majority of children. There are, there are subgroups which we can talk about next. Sure, so obviously the corollary to that is who should we be worried about right. applying restriction with? Right, for us the most important, the two most important groups are going to be patients with cyanotic heart disease sure. or patients with congenital heart disease generally and neonate, new, newborn infants. Um, I think for patients with cyanotic heart disease... There isn't an awful lot of evidence out there. The, there are a couple of, well, there is one trial of children who have undergone cave pulmonary anastomosis. So that's children who have had a cardiac surgery but are fairly stable um, and have a sta- stable circulation. And in those patients, on the base of that trial, you'd probably say that we can tolerate lower haemoglobin thresholds than have been tolerated in that group previously and that trial used a threshold of 90 grams per litre, so still significantly above what we might aim for in other children. But not all children with general heart disease are the same. Um, if we took a baby who has got an 
who has undergone a complex palliation in a small infant, then we should probably be aiming for higher numbers and probably the number, you know, if we want a number, probably 120 is reasonable for that group of patients in the immediate post-op period. If that patient you're seeing two months later and is, is doing quite well, then possibly we don't need to be aiming for such high numbers. Okay. And can we just touch on uh, neonatal surgery who need blood? Yeah. I think we have to recognise there isn't good evidence. There, are, there is a meta-analysis, which was based on four trials, but principally one large trial, but that was in very low birth weight babies on neonatal intensive cares. Um, they used very modified criteria, transfusion thresholds, which altered depending on the age of the baby and the level of respiratory support the baby had. And on the basis of that, the guidelines produced by the British, British Committee for Stands in Haematology suggest that for a, for a baby in the first week of life, really we sh- 100 grams is probably a reasonable threshold. But if they're ventilated or they're requiring oxygen or they're requiring CPAP, then probably 120 grams. For a baby who's just a few weeks old, this drops to something a bit more similar to the, to the sort of guidelines we'd had for older children. That you think about 75 grams for the baby who's doing well and 100 for the baby who, who's, who's not doing so well. I think, again, it comes down to clinical judgment and it comes down to considering other things than the haemoglobin concentration when you decide to transfuse. Can I turn that on its head just slightly and put you in the other situation whereby um, a neonate is scheduled for surgery and the SHO asks you what haemoglobin you're happy with before they come to theatre? You need to look at the child as a whole. How old is that child? How well are they? What surgery they plan to be having? And then think about it. Um, the problem is the data we have is in very premature babies of very low birth weight, that's less than 1.5 kilos. The majority of patients coming to surgery aren't going to fall into that group. Um, so we don't know for term neonates. We don't know for neonates, any child having surgery, this is really about top-up transfusions on patients who are on neonatal intensive so. cares. So... It, you have to look at the patients as a whole and consider what's going to be best for them. Sure. So sort of following on from that, um, there's a lot of work in uh, sort of pre-op optimization in adults and like everything, it's slowly filtering into the paediatric population. Um, what, what's new in that area? Right. There's kind of a buzz term, you know, one of these sort of packages of care, which is the idea of patient blood management or turning around for surgery, perioperative blood management. And it really means making the best of the patient's own blood and making the best use of transfused blood. And it covers a whole host of different things. Preoperative optimization is important for that. Um, in terms of children, this is largely about recognising and treating iron deficiency anemia. Iron deficiency anemia is fairly common in children. Just how common depends on the population that you look at. It's probably more common in many groups of patients coming for surgery. Um, Usually it's primarily due to nutritional problems rather than pathology. And the advice is generally we don't need, unlike adults, we don't need to investigate them further. We need to treat the iron deficiency and see how they respond to that. I don't want to be cancelling patients on the day of surgery because they're coming with a low haemoglobin. And I'm sure most people don't want to be doing that. So really what we need is, is systems. It's about organisational things. It's about doing, recognising the child who has iron deficiency and initiating that treatment earlier. 
Which requires you to be able to see the children six weeks before if, if you want any hope of doing anything and you achieve that. It requires somebody taking a full blood count at the very least on that baby. It doesn't mean necessarily the anaesthetist seeing the patient. Okay. Most patients, we have a lead in for most elective surgery. You know, we should be able to check a haemoglobin and then we can schedule the surgery appropriately. Um, and it, is your experience of sort of oral therapy, there is a compliance issue, I think, it's fair to say. It's I a, think it doesn't is. taste very good. It doesn't taste very good, it's a bit sticky and horrible, yeah. and it makes the poo go rather dark and yeah, sticky as well. It's, it's a hard sell. So, but I think explains the parents, because I don't think when you explain it, parents particularly like the idea of an avoidable blood transfusion as well. Yeah, sure. Um, and so, yes, so to avoid a transfusion, we, we need several things to happen, don't we? We need a, them to take the iron, we need a response to that iron. Um, it then needs to fall into a group where having a slightly higher hemoglobin at the start prevents a transfusion, and that's not going to be the case for every baby. Yeah. But um, I think it's probably worth... I think it's worthwhile. From my reading um, in the States, I know that they're keen on other avenues, such as erythropoietin, um, preoperative autologous donation, is that something um, you've employed in all day? No. No. And, and, the, and the guideline in the UK is quite is, is not to use erythropoietin in that way. And preoperative donation um, generally, is, it generally isn't used. It's generally, in any group of patients, in children, it's going to be difficult to achieve. There are papers where people have used combinations of erythropoietin and preoperative donation, but... Um, it, it will take a lot of effort, which might not be reproducible. Okay. Um, donor-directed, again, donor-directed transfusion is not recommended in the UK, and there's probably good reasons not to use donor-directed transfusion from parents, for example. Um, and, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think we've... Um We've done our absolute best to get the child um, uh, prepped for surgery. So what strategies can we do uh, in the OR to sort of prevent blood loss? Right. Bleeding during surgery is always surgical. Absolutely. The patient bleeds because someone's opened the blood vessel and it's bleeding. Um, so, you know, talking to the surgeons, seeing the way they can modify their technique is always going to be a, a good start. Um, having said that, I think most paediatric surgeons know that, and I think most paediatric mm. surgeons I work with make efforts to try and reduce transfusion and are, and are very good at it. Um, I think there's other stuff we can do. We can um, take care about how we position a patient, so we're not occluding veins, which will probably increase bleeding. We can think about our own perioperative fluid management, because giving large volumes of crystalloid is going to dilute the patient and potentially cross-transfusion triggers, increase the chance of transfusion. Um, we can use drugs which may reduce bleeding, so we can use, so trianxamic acid is the, is, would be the agent choice at the moment. Um, we can use cell salvage to try and scoop up the spilt red cells and wash them and put them back into the patient. Can we just expand a little on, on cell salvage? We'll, we'll come back to trianxamic acid. Um, 
Do, do you have a, a, a cut-off, or whether it be expected blood loss or weight of the child, in which yeah. there's an efficacy? Um, the, the, the NICE guidelines say if you have an anticipated blood loss in a child of more than 10 mils per kilo, you should use cell salvage. I'm not convinced that's always going to be practical. Cell salvage in small children needs technical adaptions. These days, there are smaller bowls available with the batch. Cell savers come in two basic groups. We have batch cell savers, which will take an amount of spilt blood and then recycle it. We have systems that try and process the blood more continually. Um, We have smaller bowls these days for the batch recycling, and some of the continuous recycling systems can recycle smaller volumes of blood. But even given that, there still are technical limitations. Um, 10 mils per kilo for a 5 kilo baby is 50 mils, and you would be lucky, I think, to be able to salvage very much from that. Sadly, um, cost comes into a lot of the decisions that are made with uh, these interventions that we feel are best for our patients. Um, can you just give us a, your, your view on the, the cost-benefit analysis yep. for cell salvage? It's a harder sell than in adult patients. For any given blood loss in adult, you are going to get more blood returned. So you're using that in place of allogeneic blood. So the cost saving is, is less in terms of transfused blood. We need to think about these things in terms of benefit of the patient. The benefit goes beyond the cost neutrality. It's worth spending some money on doing things to reduce transfusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you can reduce costs. You can set up a cell saver and only part of the cell saver system. You can set the, the suction part and not set up the actual cell saver until you know you've got enough blood. Um, so there's, there's ways about it. I think the other thing is to audit how effective it is in your patient populations and the populations you're choosing to use it on. Mm. At Older Hay, we'd use it for cardiac surgery. We'd use it for scoliosis surgery. We'd use it for our craniofacial cases. And we use it for major orthopedic surgery, which generally means operations on more than one, more than one large joint. And I know that uh, Older Hay is one of the craniofacial units, so that they, they do a lot of cases. Do you happen to know if... If they have a, a sort of a, a sieve that they use to choose which patients to use it on? Currently, we're using it on all our patients. You are? Yeah. Okay. Okay, we, we sort of touched on tranexamic acid. I wonder if we could have a more fuller answer and if I could just ask you to just elaborate on balanced transfusion as a concept in children and sort of give us your views on the benefits of Beriplex, FFP, and tranexamic acid. Okay. Um, Trinosamic acid should probably be used quite widely. It should be used whenever we're anticipating significant bleeding. Um, And if it's not used and the patient is bleeding significantly, then it it should be started. And similarly, it should be used in trauma cases, with the exception if the patient presents very late um, for any reason, which is greater than three hours after the event, then it's, it's considered to be contraindicated. The Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health recommends a dose of 15 milligrams per kilo initially, followed by an infusion of 2 milligrams per kilo per hour. I've got to say, in my practice, I, I use bigger doses than that. I use 15 milligrams per kilo, and then I use 10 milligrams per kilo per hour. I don't think there's an awful lot of evidence on that. I think if the patient's bleeding, they are potentially 
it, it's a stress on the pharmacokinetics. They're losing some of the tranexamic acid in the blood loss. So in a bleeding patient, it may be worth increasing the dose. So as I was well. just going to ask you about that. So I know that um, some of the authors of the initial trials, that their next target, their next sort of question they want to answer is what dose should we be using? So you don't know where that the RCPCH dose came from? That was, it's basically an allometric scaling of the dose used in the crash study. FFP is gaining popularity. Hmm. Um, I think the thing to start by saying about FFP is it's not particularly good. It's not in that it lacks potency. It contains clotting factors, including fibrinogen, only at the same concentration as adult plasma, which is also variable. Um, There's two approaches to using a drug that's not particularly potent. One is to find something better. The other is to use a lot of it. I think in a sense where the trauma guidelines... It's recommended in the European Trauma Guidelines and now in the recent NICE Guidelines on treatment of major trauma that it's used early in a one-to-one ratio with red blood cell transfusion. And that's roughly translated the NICE Guidelines to use in children as giving equal volumes of FFP and red blood cells. It is recognised that that practice has led to unnecessary transfusion of FFP in patients who then don't bleed that severely. Small volumes of FFP are almost certainly not effective. They're not effective in correcting coagulation abnormalities. They're not effective at reducing bleeding. If you can demonstrate a low fibrillation, you should not use FFP for the purpose of increasing fibrillation. It is not effective for that purpose. You should use either cryoprecipitase or a fibrillation concentrate. Now, what I think what we're left with is that we should be transfusing red cells to our patients to maintain hematocrit during bleeding. We should be transfusing platelets to maintain a platelet count and platelet function, which we'll be checking with point-of-care tests of coagulation. We should be transfusing cryoprecipitase or fibrinogen concentrates to maintain a fibrinogen concentrate, and we should be aiming for fairly high, well within the normal range fibrinogen concentrations. On top of that, we're probably going to need to give a bit of fluid that's not red cells and isn't drugs and isn't anything else. We should give that as FFP. The other caveat to that is even in a small baby, use adult units of FFP. Small paediatric packs are not useful for that, for that concept. And it's probably not worth using at all unless you're going to give a large volume, which means probably more than 40 mils per kilo, which you're only going to do if you are losing very large volumes of blood. Okay. Um, I haven't had much experience with Beriplex in children. Do you have a view on, on its role? Yeah. Um, Beriplex is a prothrombin complex concentrate. There's actually two prothrombin com- complex concentrates available in the UK. That's Octoplex and Beriplex. They basically contain vitamin K-dependent clotting factors together with some antithrombin and some other inhibitors of coagulation in a concentrated form. And that's important. Unlike FFP, this is a very concentrated product. They are indicated for reversal of, of, of warfarin, and they're the agent that should be used for reversal of warfarin. Again, FFP should not be used for that purpose. Now, the use in acquired coagulopathy that's not due to oral anticoagulants is also talked about. There's some... There's some case series of its use. It is mentioned in the European Trauma Guidelines, um, but really the risk-benefit hasn't been particularly well defined. 
This is complicated because not all prothrombin concentrates are the same, and some of the reports of adverse events are associated are, are with use of other prothrombin concentrates that don't contain antithrombin or inhibitors. And some of the reports of lack of efficiency are used to prothrombin concentrates that contain fewer clotting factors. Um, so the jury's still out. I, from personal experience, I've used it in two cardiac patients who were bleeding very severely, and it appeared to bring benefits to those particular patients. Dosing is extremely uncertain. For reversing warfarin, that's based on PT. I don't think that's validated for use of other cryoclopathy. Um, the really interesting kid on the, stuff on the block at the moment is fibrinogen concentrates. There are lots of very positive reports of use of fibrinogen concentrates. Most of these come from countries where cryoprecipitate is not available. The comparison of cryoprecipitate versus fibrinogen concentrates for increasing fibrinogen in the context of bleeding is as yet unclear. The use of fibrinogen concentrate early for treatment of coagulation abnormalities prior to severe bleeding um, is also uncertain. Some of the early studies in adults have been less favourable than, than we might have wished for in that sense. We do use fibrinogen concentrates. We use it as we would use FFP as an alternative in some cardiac patients. And um, we, we, anecdotally, we find it useful. There are some studies going on in children, particularly there's a study being proposed in children undergoing heart surgery, which hopefully will be informative. Uh, just finally, just for sake of completion on this topic, um, I'd just ask you to comment on recombinant factor 7 or NOVA 7. Yeah. There's sometimes an assumption that something that expensive must be really, really very good. Mm. Um, it does work. There's case reports that are convincing that it has worked in individual patients. There's also case series which demonstrates a very high instance of thrombosis associated with its use. That's complicated because there is a high instance of thrombosis in patients who have survived severe bleeding anyway. Um, I suspect it is a rather dangerous drug and from the way it works you would expect it to be associated with thrombosis. Um, I think its use should be confined to really immediately life-threatening hemorrhage associated with severe coagulopathy where other treatments have failed. And would that be an off-licence use? And that would be an off-licence use. And again, it's probably been greatly overused for that purpose. The reports of off-licence use, certainly in North America, are that it was used an awful lot. Well, I think the UK experience has been that we can get away without it an awful lot. Philip Arnold, thank you very much.